Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by Taylor Pearson and Gabe Basson. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Excited to, excited to get into it. But first, let's start with some introductions. Can you guys say a little bit more about what you guys do and what you guys are focused on and where you're most excited right now in crypto? Yeah, so this is Taylor. I guess I'm a blogger, writer, uh, and then I do some marketing and advisory work uh, in crypto. And then lately, what I've been thinking a lot about is sort of transaction costs in crypto. So, you know, think about the internet reduced sort of the marginal cost to zero. And you had this, created this whole sort of like long tail phenomenon, which created these platform aggregators and these niche businesses that sort of exist on them. And so I'm thinking a lot about like, what are the, what are the transaction costs that are going to get reduced by these crypto protocols? And what are the implications of that? Yeah. Hey guys, I worked on Wall Street for better part of 14 years. And, you know, since then I've been doing a bunch of different things across many different assets, real estate, uh, venture capital, some private equity, some crypto. So, you know, recently I've been doing, I've been meeting with some accelerators and trying to, you know, kind of work on the advisory side, kind of across, across the sector. But, you know, what's, what's most exciting is just kind of the unknown of the space. You know, I tend to, I tend to trend towards, you know, the fat monies, kind of like like one of your podcasts. Kind of tend, tend to trend towards that, but I, I want to be optimistic that there's that there's lots of ways that this is going to play out, and so I'm just trying to to be super open minded about that. Cool. We originally connected because Gabe, you had this Twitter storm about inflation. Yep. Do you want to sort of get into where you're going with that, and then we can get into it? Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, I guess what I kind of took issue with was that. Oftentimes, when people talk about inflation, they kind of view it only through kind of this myopic lens of kind of these indices, uh, you know, governmental indices, whether it's a CPI, the PCE, in my opinion, poorly constructed indices, but, you know, indices that attempt to kind of show levels of inflation, and then the Fed takes their cues from those and, and you know, acts accordingly. And so I was just, you know, kind of, you know, kind of riffing on that, that that's too narrow of a view in terms of inflation. And, you know, if you take a bit of a broader view, you look at, you know, everything, you know, that included, but also um, asset prices and asset inflation. And so I was kind of just giving and articulating a few examples of, of kind of asset inflation across the board. We've seen, you know, not, you know, in the U.S., of course, obviously globally as well as, as QE is not just a, 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 a symptom of the United States. And so, so yeah, I, I guess that was kind of the main point. And, you know, I guess, you know, it wasn't really a statement about Keynesianism or Austrianism, although it could read that way, you know, and, and actually uh, I've got a few people that, that kind of hit me on DM pretty aggressively about, about that. And they were, <laughs> they seemed to be pretty Keynesian oriented. And, and I guess, yeah, I guess I was just trying to take a broader view of, of inflation and understand and, and thinking about things from that perspective and kind of the, and, and also the ramifications of that and that's kind of you know kind of I, I kind of left it open-ended at the end regarding kind of what 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 the potential ramifications could be but 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 also just along those lines is is it wasn't complete necessarily because there's a there's a lot of factors that 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 push into the inflation thesis and you know that's where the pension funds and all those other things come in but you know the, the tweet storm couldn't be a hundred a hundred threads so so the crux of the thesis is basically that there was all this money printing with QE and the different, I can't remember, whatever the European Central Banks and all these other things were. And so instead of seeing that inflation in consumer asset prices, like you know, the cost of whatever these, how these indices are constructed, we're seeing that inflation because that money has basically like found its way into the stock market. Is that accurate? Yeah, I was in the stock market, the bond market, the real estate market, the the startup market, and 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 Eric, that's where you could you could probably chime in a, a lot about that. But yeah, uh, basically across most financial assets, you know, you could argue it hasn't it hasn't flowed into uh, a lot of hard assets like like gold. You can see in the price of gold isn't near highs. The price of oil isn't near highs. The price of a lot of commodities are, are not. And so there's, there's an argument against that there. But yeah, financial assets have, you know, quote unquote, inflated or appreciated, whatever word you want to use. And what, how does like when, 
you know, the Fed quote unquote prints money. How does that money get into, so, okay, we're going to say like, you know, the price of a share of Apple is inflated because of QE. Like, how does it, how does it get there? Well, you know, the, the Fed, they're, they're keeping interest rates low and it flows through the frat. I mean, I'm not, by the way, I'm not an, an economist and I'm not a, I'm not like a, I don't, I don't know the, the workings uh, perfectly of, of this, but, you know, they, they, they control interest rates and they're also, you know, with quantitative easing, they are buying assets and they're, they're, they're doing that via, via mostly the, the, the treasury bond market and, and the agencies, agency bonds. And so, you know, they're controlling interest rates, which, which then, you know, lowers interest rates to banks. Banks then arguably lend money out to the market. The market is then, you know, more liquid and, you know, companies, people, investors and such can, can use that money to, to do what they want with it. And arguably all of that is supposed to spur growth and spur, you know, inflation in these, in a lot of these kind of consumer indices. And we haven't, we haven't seen a ton of that, and that was kind of the, the, the point. Is that is that the, the you know the a big pushback on money printing was like it's going to cause crazy inflation. It's going to cause crazy inflation, and we're going to have hyperinflation. You know whatever the, the scare tactic is, and there's a lot of kind of Keynesian you know proponents saying, well, look, we haven't had it. Look, look, we did it, and look, we haven't had that crazy inflation. So you guys were wrong, and I guess that was kind of kind of my point is that well, we have had a lot of inflation. In, in assets. And by the way, this experiment ain't over yet. So, you know, let the, let's let the next card come out of the deck, uh, the multiple cards come out of the deck to use a blackjack reference, because we don't know how this thing's going to end. You know, if you look at the Fed balance sheet right now, the, the amount of assets that they own, it's about $4 trillion and it's just barely coming in. I can send you a chart you can put in the show notes. And so they're just now doing what's called quantitative tightening, which is basically kind of you know, kind of contracting the balance sheet, but it's just in its infancy. And so let's just, we need to see how this thing plays out because we're still very early. Are there any analogs? I guess the thing that comes to mind is like the Bank of Japan and like what's been going on because they've sort of like the Bank of Japan has been doing something like this basically like since the 90s, right? Is that, is there some lesson to be gleaned from what's happening in Japan or what happened in Japan? Yeah, I mean, I think that the term is, you know, I don't know if they call it stagnation or they call it just kind of low growth. And if you look at the growth of Japan, it's kind of been, yes, they've been doing that for, you know, yeah, the better part of 20, 25 years. And it's, you know, they've got very low interest rate, very low growth, and their economy isn't arguably healthy. And by the way, their, their, their government owns whatever, I don't know the exact percentages they own. If they've basically taken their economy private because the government owns so much of their of their bonds and, and, and equities too, in their case. They own a ton of ETFs. So I guess the ramifications are are slower growth. And they, and, and they're and they're trying to figure it out too. They, their experiment is still ongoing as well. And so, you know, what what we need to see, and I think Taylor, you made a point of it the other day. It's like, you know, to see if the, to, to really call what, what what happened with, with QE a, a success. Is, is for like a successful wind down of the balance sheet and, and kind of have them, you know, have, no, have the Fed completely unwind the $4 trillion in bonds that they own and then and, and kind of have no real ramifications or no real crises. That's, that would be a huge victory for the Keynesians. But until then, I think it's too early to call, to call victory. Right. Which hasn't happened with the Bank of Japan either. Like they haven't wound down their balance sheet. It just like keeps growing. Exactly. Exactly. And, they, and their growth is anemic. Yeah, exactly. I think I, that's my, my guess is what, what happens. I mean, you know, the Fed seems to be more hell-bent on, on reducing their balance sheet. Uh, at the same time, you know, we get a 2% pullback in the market and we start talking about QE5. And so, you know, there's extreme, extreme reactivity by the Fed. And that was only, I was only partially serious there. But, you know, you know that. And so, you know, we, the market hasn't really been tested recently in terms of this. And so we'll see. We need to see the Fed raise rates slowly and see if they continue on that path. That seems to be how they're going to continue. But, you know, who knows? And we need to see the balance sheet kind of come in a bit and, and see the ramifications of that. And there's also this thesis we've talked about, sort of like the Fed has gone from being like reactive to proactive. Like I think you mentioned a 2016 or 2015 or so, there was like a 5% drawdown in the market and everyone was like, you know, yeah, kind of talking about doing quantitative easing again. <laughs> you know, as soon as like anything started to happen you want uh, I talk what is uh, we talked about there's a, a macro guy named Chris Cole I know we've spoken about like sort of like his thesis on what's going on here yeah I mean there's just this like this hyper hyper 
reactivity, you know, from the Fed. The Fed is seemingly super super scared of any of any pain and you know, you know, to pretty bring it back to crypto, there's there's a very, very high tide preference with the Fed. And the market's been accustomed to being quote unquote saved, right? The market's kind of been programmed to think that every that every you know it's whatever the what's the term btfd by the fucking dip um i don't know if we can swear on this thing but that's that's kind of the mentality since 2009 and it's it's it, the intensity of that mentality has continued to increase in my opinion and a result of that is um you know this kind of what they call a fed put where where it's like the Fed will save us if, if, if we go down. And I think that's part of it. And I, I don't want to be myopic around the Fed because I don't think the Fed's the only contributor. And we can talk about the pensions and all these things later. But that, that's, that's, that's a big kind of reflexive thing. And so what happens when that reflexivity shifts is kind of the question you brought up a guy like Chris Cole. Uh, I don't know if people know who Chris Cole is. You guys, you guys probably do, but he's a, he's a hedge fund manager and he focuses on on volatility strategies and you know he can he can obviously explain it way, his strategy way better than mine but i could yeah he just he wants exposure to to volatility when it occurs and if you look at any chart of the vol of of the vix is which is the kind of fear metric people look at the vix you you can see that fear has been pretty pretty low for quite some time and there's actually a term structure. So there's a volatility curve that exists, which basically tracks the you know, futures of volatility you know, out to, you know, I don't know, it might go out a couple of years, but you, know, you, can, you can trade that curve and you can, you can make bets along that curve of, when, of where do you think volatility is going to be. And that's essentially a, a gauge of, of current volatility and future, future volatility or current fear and future fear and the interplay of that. And so volatility overall has been extremely compressed, you know, since basically 2000, 2008, 2009, I mean, not 2008, yeah, since the bottom of the market, let's just say it's been repeatedly compressed and, you know, some say that's a function of the Fed. You know, we've had some outbreaks where, this, where, the, where the vol curve will move and, and vol, fear picks up a lot and people get scared and volatility picks up, but then it mean reverts right back down. And so there's, there's, this, there's this kind of argument that the, that the Fed is, is kind of part of that, is a reflexive part of that where people, you know, get scared for 10 seconds and, and then they, you know, kind of come back to, come back to earth. And, you know, I can, I can give it, you know, just a general kind of just a, a, a list of things. So in 2010, we had a Greek crisis. And then in 2011, the U.S. lost its AAA rating. And then we've had situations in Italy, you know, in Spain and Portugal, you know, the pigs, remember them in 2011? And there was Cyprus, you know, banks shutting down in Cyprus and these things. And there was, you know, Syrian wars in Ukraine, the fiscal cliff and sequestration, uh, the taper tantrum when they were started to taper, you know, how much QE was going to go on. And then you had the end of QE1, the end of QE2, the end of QE3, you know, oil, oil collapse in 2000, what was it, 14, 15, I forgot the year, you know, China RMB re, uh, devaluation, then you had Brexit, then you had Trump. And then you had, you know, China again, and then, you know, and, and but, it, but it all, you know, here we are, market at all time highs. You know, we have these momentary crises and then the crises which arguably you know could at the time feel like oh this could be it this is going to end it like you know two weeks ago turkey was going to end everything right that was kind of the fear that was a scary thing and now people aren't talking about turkey anymore you know in, in you know two weeks later how do you explain that i i think it's a i think it's a short attention span you know in terms of people forgetting or in terms of of, no, of markets at all time highs Okay, so yeah, here comes here we you know loops back into into the kind of pension thesis that you know pensions just for some context. When I say pension funds, I mean municipal, you know, state, local, government pension funds. I don't mean you know GM has a pension and you know 3M and you know whoever has a pension. Most private private pensions are are tiny, but public pensions are are massive. So public pensions have gone from in the last like 30 years, the public pension assets have gone from about 45, 50% of GDP to about 100% of GDP. So they've ballooned in terms of their, their size relative to, to the economy. So, so just for some context, pension, pension assets have gone from $2 trillion, about $17 trillion or $18 trillion, whatever the number is. I don't have the exact, but they've gone up a lot. 
The Fed, for, for some context, so we got 17 trillion, let's say. The Fed's balance sheet, as I said before, is 4 trillion. So <laughs> pension assets are, what is that? 4x, you know, three, three, three and a half, 4x, the, the, the Fed's, the Fed's balance sheet. And the reality is, is they're the, they're the biggest player in the world in terms of assets, in terms of liquidity. And they are also the, yeah, they're the biggest buyer and seller of these assets. And so, what what we've got with pension funds is what's called a pension gap. So that's the difference between you know what what assets are held in the pensions and what they owe in the future. So again, I, we can talk about that. I don't want to get in the weeds too much, but they basically got a you know pensioners who work at police stations and they're policemen and and firemen and government workers. They're owed a certain thing in the future. They're owed a certain guaranteed payment or whatever into the future. And then they've got assets that are supposed to earn a return to then pay them those, the, you know, their, their, their whatever pension in perpetuity. And so you've got what's called a pension gap that occurs between what, how much money is, is currently held and what's, what's owed in the future. And again, there's a rate of return expected on that, on those assets. And it's, it's, it's this kind of forced buying by these pensions that are, are, are causing flows into all of these assets. My the thesis is, is, is that essentially that you've got the pensions who are, you know, basically they need to make whatever it it's about a 7% return right now. They need to make 7% return. So what are they doing to get that 7% return? You know, in a, in a one or 2% environment, they need to push. And so what are they doing? They're pushing money to different asset classes. They're pushing them. And specifically they're pushing them to credit funds. They're putting, they're pushing them to levered credit funds. They're pushing them to commercial real estate. And they think that these, these types of assets are going to give them the, the seven and a half percent return that they, that they need in order to pay off pensioners in the future. And so what do these, what do these funds do? What do they, what do the credit funds do when they receive this money? Well, they then go and they, you know, they've got tons of, of liquidity to lever, to, to give to companies you know, S&P 500 or whatever, public companies, private companies, let's just say public companies that then have ton, they, they basically, you know, give loans or, or do or invest in bonds, which then gives, gives cash on the balance sheets of these companies. And then these, these, these companies can do whatever they want. They can buy back stock, they can do M&A, they can do, you know, they can invest, they can, they can, they can do whatever. But the point is, is that they're liquefied, and so then you that flows into kind of the buyback thesis that that, that people go people talk about. And you know, since two thousand nine, I think it's I think the number is there's been about four trillion dollars in in buybacks executed by companies, and I think there's been about twenty trillion in wealth created in that time. So arguably twenty percent twenty percent of the wealth created arguably has come from the bid in in share buybacks. You know, all that's up up for argument, and people can contextualize it different ways but the point the point is is that because these pensions are pushing and pushing because they need to 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 return money in the future to their pensioners they need to get their required return which is currently again around seven seven and a quarter percent and if they don't get that the the pension gap grows and grows and grows and currently the pension gap is around four trillion dollars the difference between what they have and what they owe is about four trillion dollars that also is about the size of of the of the Fed balance sheet, so the so the pension gap alone is the size of the Fed balance sheet. If that doesn't speak volumes about how big of a player these pensions are, I, I don't know what does. Yeah, I think what's really interesting to me about this thesis is, well, one sort of like the whole Fed narrative that we talked about that the Fed printed money and that money is you know, going into asset prices. Like that seems a lot more widely talked about. So, like in a certain sense, you you sort of like assume that's priced in. Like most market participants realize that. But I guess the the pension thing when we first talked about it was really interesting to me because no one's like I've never heard anyone else talk about that. Not that I'm like the most informed person or I'm not like a, a running a hedge fund or anything. But that doesn't seem like that's super super well talked about. And there's like a real I can, yeah, as you like the pension fund gap, there's like a weird incentive problem where, you know, if you were managing your own money and like you could only get 5% safely, you wouldn't like take all these crazy risks to reach and get 7.5%. But if you're managing one of these pension funds, my understanding is, yeah, you sort of like have to hit whatever that target is in order for the pension fund to be, to make the, the returns it needs in order to, to pay out its liabilities. And so you end up like this, all this reaching and doing all this stuff that doesn't that quote unquote rational actor managing their own money when it was all their own skin in the game might not 
use those investment strategies, um, but they're sort of put, you know, that's how the incentives are lined up. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, you call it forced buying, you can call it, yeah, they have to put the money to work and they have to get this return. If they do not, then, you know, they become more underfunded. And, and again, you know, this, this becomes a bit of a kind of just a problem that's, that's known. I mean, the thing is, it's your point. It's not talked about on CNBC every day. It's not a thing. I mean, there, you can, you can read about it. It, it exists and there's articles and, you know, I think, <laughs> And I don't read Zero Hedge that often, uh, no offense, but like I, you know, they, they sometimes I think have talked about it. My friend sent me an article from it. So it's, yeah, I agree. It's not front page news. I think part of that is just because, yeah, again, people, people focus on the narrative they want to focus on. And, and also it's, it's been going on for a while. I mean, these, these things have been underfunded and they're kind of continually underfunded. They've, they've gotten continually more so underfunded. And so like, that's, that's, you know, what's the breaking point? Is there a breaking point? You know, so if you look across states, I mean, I think New Jersey, New Jersey is like 35% funded. You know, they're wow. funded. You've got a state like Colorado, which is like 99% funded. And so Wisconsin is like, like 99% funded, but then you've got a lot of states that are below 50%. So you've got, it's, it's, it's it varies state to state to state, but it, it just becomes big, a bigger and bigger burden. And so what ends up, I mean, I just about the social consequences potentially of it. But yeah, to your point, it's definitely something that's not that's not really talked about and is, in my opinion, the biggest factor in in markets in the United States. What what are the social factors? What's the tangent? The social factors are, you know, I I, I want to try to like explain it uh, succinctly. Basically, so so these states and these municipalities, I mean, they've they've got budgets, right? They've got budgets. Well, if the budget, you know, they, they've got to pay into these pension into these pension assets. They've got to continually fund these assets because they, you know, there's more pensioners who, who are, are now supposed to get, get, get a portion of these assets in the future and the, the liability continues to grow. And so the expense, the pension expense for these cities, towns, states continues to grow. And so what they end up doing is diverting funds with the, when they have a fixed budget, let's say you've only got a hundred million dollars. I'm just making something up. Well, your expect, let's say your pension expense was was only five million, so you know, okay, fine. But you know, now you've got the same budget, and now the pension expense is thirty million. Well, you know, where do those where does that twenty five million come from? And so, what you end up seeing is you end up seeing money diverted and, and kind of taken from these other services. So you see, you you see, you know, you talk about it. You look at infrastructure. You look at you know, you see police forces getting let go. You see police forces is shrinking. You see firemen, there's municipal workers going away. I mean, there's probably a lot of a lot of bloating in the, in the municipal side, anyways. But 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 in all in all seriousness, I mean, what are the ramifications of having less police officers and having less firemen and having worse infrastructure continually? I mean, that's something that people talk about all the time: the bridges and these things. But you know, at some point, there's there's ramifications of that. Just just how does having less police officers in the neighborhood affect crime? And so, you know, when I when I talk about social consequences, I just mean that 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 there's a, it's it's not a zero sum game, but it's it's a bit of a a zero-sum game in the sense that they have this money and they can spend it on municipal services, municipal workers, or you know, or they can they can continue to to plow it into into these funds. And there's there's just there's ramifications to that. So here's my attempt to sort of summarize what we've been talking about for the last thirty minutes. Tell me if this is accurate or not. But like, there's so you look at these pension funds. There's a huge amount of money. Um, they have to hit these targets in order to meet their liabilities. And since basically. 2008, 2009, like the only way to do that in markets has been to be basically short volatility. And as you said, like BTFD and just sort of assume everything keeps going up. So you get to this scenario out of the metaphor. I think we've talked about before is this idea of like jumping off a one foot wall a hundred times or a hundred foot wall once the, the impact of volatility is asymmetric. Like a 1% market dip doesn't really affect anyone, but like a 90% drawdown, you know, is more than 90 times worse than a, uh, a one person drawdown. So I think that's the that's the implication to me. That's like sort of in, like interesting and also scary, right? That you could are we really like is volatility just lower and it's going to be lower forever? And like the Fed is going to wind down its balance sheet and the pension funds are going to be liabilities. Like this whole thing is going to then sort of like smoothed over, or have we just like taken all this volatility, compressed it, and sort of like pushed that volatility into the future? Uh, where, you know, instead of jumping off a one foot wall a hundred times, we're going to have, there's some hundred foot wall standing, you know, at the end, it's going to have that we're going to have to jump off of. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I don't want to. We could go down a crazy dystopian path, and I, I, I want to be more optimistic. But, 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 yeah. I mean, at some point, things come home to roost, and you know, I, I think at some point there's going to be a, a, a pension crisis. There's going to be. That's going to. That's. I don't know. It's inevitable. I, I, I hate to hate to say that, but I, I think there's going to be. Again, is it is it going to be tomorrow? No. Um, you know, within the next twenty years, I'd say highly likely. Again, I, it's it's impossible to time these things. It's similar to like the social security argument or the the student debt argument. You know, these these things that are unsustainable, that are essentially fools' errands on some on some level. There's consequences to that, and so then that that just comes back to kind of you know the kind of printing money. What ends up happening? What 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 do we what do what are our options when these things happen? You know, historically, we've relied on the government to save us and, and and do these things, and you know his you know as of now, you know we've been in this kind of one foot wall environment. You could say 2008 was it was it was a hundred foot wall. Some might say that you know other people might say no. That was the first kind of shot across the bow of something way bigger and look and look where we're at now even though everything feels good and everything you know appears good and look at asset prices and look at unemployment and look at you know yeah look at jobs and look at growth i mean gdp's been strong and look we just got the tax stimulus and they're in the repatriation you know make it great make america great whatever you know like everybody you know everybody's you know in the u.s you know, not everybody, but a lot of people think things are, are humming along fine. And on a lot of levels, we are, but there's a lot below the surface. Um, you know, these 100-foot walls are, you never know when, when it's time to, to jump. Is it going to take another, well, one, do you think we're going to have another 2008 in the next decade? I know it's a hard question, but it, my question is, is, is it going to take another event like that or something worse? for people to say, hey, maybe this isn't working. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, again, I, like, just to be clear, I'm not some negative Nelly coming on trying to be like, you know, I just don't, I want, I don't want to come off as, uh, you know, like the David Stockmans of the world who are just like, the world's ending tomorrow. Like, I, so, but I do think that there is, I think that, uh, the, I think it's conventional wisdom that what we saw in 2008 is an anomalous event and that we're never going to see it again. And it's a once in a generation, you know, whatever, whatever it's said, I think that's conventional wisdom. And I, I actually don't think that's the case. I think we definitely are going to see another crisis. Um, yeah. You said next decade or two or uh, yeah, I think we'll probably see two in that or more in that period. I mean, but I, I again, it's, it's impossible to time these things again. This, you keep pushing on the string for, for, for a long period of time. And you know, right now the music's playing, you know, it's kind of that, that, that kind of, I don't know, I think it was, was it Chuck Prince, uh, not, was it Chuck Prince, yeah, the city guy is like, you got to dance while the music's playing. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of what we're seeing right now. People are dancing and they're dancing and it's good. And, you know, the music's playing and, and we'll see at some point the music shuts off and we'll see who has a seat and who doesn't. The question is, like, what are the implications for crypto? And what does this mean for crypto? Like, the last 30 minutes of what we've been talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, here, here, here's an interesting thing. I just had this thought, like, earlier this morning. Pensions own zero crypto right now. They own zero crypto. So there's $18 trillion or $17 trillion in assets, and they own zero crypto. And so, you know, let, you know again, if, if you want to be optimistic, think about think about that potential buying power. Think about if they start to see an opportunity in this space. I mean, they're, they're the slowest, you know, oldest school investors in the world. So you need, you know, not, you need the retail guys, you need the institutional guys, the hedge funds to kind of come about, you need the venture capital, you need the private equity, and then pension guys come along way later. But my point is, if you want to be optimistic, potentially, what happens if pensions start to view value, see value in crypto, and see value in, oh my God, this can potentially help us in in closing our gap you know again it's hard for me to get there if i'm being honest it's hard for me to for for that for to see the paradigm shift needed to get there but because of kind of the the kind of the old guard that that kind of runs these things but you know that's that's a potential potentially very optimistic way to way to think about it and the more pessimistic way is just that you know what happens if a pension, if some of these pensions need to get bailed out? These state pensions need to get bailed out by the by the federal government. And I think Taylor, you mentioned this before, and you can talk about it further if you want. But just just kind of the bailouts kind of become turtles all the way down. So the this the, the Fed has to come in and bail out the the states potentially because the states can't pay their pension bills, or or there or there's or there you know the states have to massively cut. So you've got another option: the states can cut the pensions, and they can say, oh. You thought you were going to make whatever fifty thousand a year for the next, you know, Mister Policeman. You, you thought you were going to make fifty thousand a year for the for the next, 
till you die? Well, you were only going to pay you 10000 a year now. And what are the ramifications of that? And so you could potentially see a situation where the feds have to come in and, 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 and either, either, either there's, there's benefits are cut or, or, you know, if they want, need to make everyone whole, then the Fed has to come in and maybe bail out some of these pension funds and maybe they have to print money again. And then maybe we lose faith in the fiat system at some point. I mean, that's kind of the, you know, the, the Fed government, the Fed, how much debt does the, US, the federal government have? I mean, that's, you know, arguably unsustainable. And, and so then who bails out the Fed, you know, at, at that point? And so again, where, where something like Bitcoin, and I, I'll just I'll center it around Bitcoin versus crypto because I think there is a differentiation. I mean, that's where something like Bitcoin becomes anti-fragile and becomes, becomes you know, a, 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 va- a vast, uh, massive store of value. I mean, arguably it's a store of value now, but in that case, that's the 100-foot wall where Bitcoin could, could, be, could be extremely valuable. And, you know, when, when fiat, when the U.S. dollar gets, gets, gets debunked, which again, Hard to get there. Not something people are expecting tomorrow. People are talking about, you know, Turkey and, and Venezuela, and, and it can never happen to the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is a reserve currency, and yet, it, you know, the, the, the thesis, I get it, and it is, the, it is the tallest midget. But, you know, in that instance where the U.S. people lose faith in the U.S. dollar, whew, man, that's like the, the sovereign individual neo-feudalism potential situation, Taylor. And uh, I don't know, I, you know, that's not, not that exciting to think about quite frankly. It's not that, that's not hopeful in my mind. So it almost feels like, is this a fair uh, <laughs> characterization? If not simplistic, uh, you know, Austrian economists are like, Hey, you know, Keynesians are trying to over-engineer everything and just like stick to fundamentals, you know, Tim Duncan, San Antonio Spurs style, you know, the fed is like, you know, we're playing chess and you're, you're playing checkers. Like, you know, like you're just on a different, you just don't understand the level, like the level of, of the game we're playing. What is that a fair characterization? And two, like what would need to be true for, for the Fed or, or more broadly to be like, actually, this is more complicated. We, we don't even know what we're doing either. <laughs> let's just, let's just keep it simple. Oh man. The first question. Yeah. I mean, listen, they've got a very hard job, Fed, right? I mean, it's, it's not easy to do what they're doing or what they're attempting to do. You know, it's like, I don't know what's the analogy, steering a, a aircraft carrier and, you know, you, you got to start turning like, 200 miles before you actually have to turn or whatever the thing is. I mean, it, it's, it's very hard. And, and at the same time, I, I think that there is a bit of control that the Fed has, because, you, know, you know, and you can, and as a result, you know, the market kind of believes that and it becomes a reflexive. But that saved us, you know, with TARP and with, with all this QE and look what happened. And like, we're back, we're back to all time highs and things are great. And the world's in the better place. Um, and, and look at assets and look at wealth. and Oh, everything's great. You know, again, I could dissect that. But, um, you know, arguably the Fed's not in control. We just haven't, in the U.S. at least, see them lose control. You know, and so that's the tricky part is like, okay, if you go to Venezuela, I mean, the Fed's lost. They're, they're Fed or whatever you want to call it. I don't even know what it is. They've lost control. Argentina's lost control. Iran's lost control. Turkey's lost control. And by the way, most governments have lost control of their currencies over time. That's why the average fiat currency has an age of 27 years. You know, an average currency fails after 27 years, historically. We've got a little bit of a recency bias with, with currencies today because the average, you know, I think the top 20, or I forgot the stat, but the top 20 currencies, I think, have been around on average 39 or 40 years. So we think, you know, there's this, this recency bias around fiat currencies, and especially in the U.S., where that could never fail. And, the, you know, a lot of it's based on the belief in the Fed and the belief that the Fed has control. And, and my argument is that there are much bigger factors out there than the Fed, pension funds being, being one of them you know, you, you, you just, I don't know, it needs to be more nuanced. And so even my inflation tweet, which kind of got your attention, Eric, or Taylor's attention, you know, that didn't even bring up the pension stuff. You know, it, it probably wasn't nuanced enough because the Fed is not the sole region for asset inflation. You know, they're, they're part of it, but, but, there's, but there's, other, there's other reasons as well. And one thing that's interesting to me here too is you sort of going back to the idea of like, you know, what would it take for the Keynesians to be wrong? Like there's sort of this whole like macroeconomic, Economics is sort of voodoo because I think you know, like if if something went wrong, I think like the key generator would be like, oh, they just didn't print enough money, or they, they didn't manage it well enough. So it's, it's sort of always this like, no matter what happens, sort of any party can always just say like, oh yeah, well you know actually we were right, but you know they, the other people didn't let us print enough money, or you know, people printed too much money, or whatever it is. But I like your sort of like aircraft carrier metaphor, and it makes you think like. 
right? The Fed's like driving this aircraft carrier, but what seems to be, you know, different about today maybe than historically is, you know, the aircraft carrier is driving at night and like getting less powerful, you know, it's, it's harder further and farther out and, and, you know, what the future is going to look like. And so now you're having to like make all these decisions about turning 200 miles ahead when you can only see 20 miles ahead. And that seems like it's, yeah, it seems very hard. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're, and they're, you know, again, they're, the illusion of control continues to reinforce itself, you know, as, as kind of, you know, markets, markets behave, the longer markets behave, you know, kind of appropriately or in a relatively positive fashion. Although if you look globally, globally markets haven't been, been so great, but in the U.S. at least, you know, the, the Fed can do no wrong. And, you know, I just, I, you know, I, it's a scary thought to think of, of, of the Fed losing control or, or, or the illusion of, it's more the illusion of control kind of being given up on, you know, people, people abandoning that because I, I could argue that they don't really have much control right now. And it's, and it's, it's, it's an illusion, but once, you know, this stuff is like, what is it? I don't know if cargo cults, the right term, Taylor, but you know, people believing in something so strongly. And so it continues to manifest a bit, but once that belief goes, it goes and it goes quick. I think you've seen that historically with, with the ways governments have, have dealt with, with money and monetary policy. And you're even seeing it in real time, you know, not in our country, but in places like Turkey and Iran and such. Right. And I guess this is sort of like the hundred foot wall thing. Like as long as everyone agrees that the Fed is in control, then like the Fed is in control. But yeah. as soon as like people start disagreeing and, you know, jumping off the boat, like you don't want to be the last guy to jump off the boat, right? So you get into this, like, I don't know if bank is the right term, but yeah, it's, you, you don't want to be the last person to change your mind if they've lost control. So there becomes almost like a prisoner's dilemma where like as soon as like someone else starts jumping off the boat, like you want to get off the boat as quickly as possible. And then the next person wants to get off the boat and then, you know, end up in this sort of this hundred foot wall thing where the effects cascade all the way down. Yeah, and I think that that goes back to kind of some of some of the the Chris Cole stuff where there's it's, it's called convexity where it's you know it keeps getting it gets worse or it, you know it it starts moving at a at an increasing rate the farther it goes and so that's when when you get things like you know margin calls and forced selling and you know you've got you know so let's just say an example where you've got you know assets that are that are managed and you know all of a sudden they've got you know they're, they're not that liquid of assets and you know, they, they start to go down in value slightly. And so, you know, investors who are investing in those assets are like, oh, screw this. We want to take our money out from you. And so then the fund manager has to then go sell some of those assets in, in the open market. They're not that liquid necessarily. That causes price, further price uh, depreciation, which causes further underperformance or, or, or poor performance in the fund, causing more investors to redeem, causing more forced selling. And there's, again, lack of liquidity at those points. And it just, yeah, to your point, it becomes, a, you know, it's the classic margin call setup. And we're far away from that. I mean, I, I, I can't sit here and say, you know, again, I, I don't foresee that happening tomorrow. You know, again, the 100-foot wall could be right around the corner. I, I, I don't know. But, I, you know, I, I would say if you're a probabilistic thinker, it's probably not happening tomorrow because those things generally take some time to evolve. But yeah, margin call scenarios, um, especially when there's lots of leverage in the system, there is, you know, especially on the sovereign level, it, 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 can, it can move and it can move fast. Right, that's the interesting, I guess that's what's compelling about the argument to me. If you think about, I read this book called How Nature Works by Per Bach. It was like one of like the early sort of like pop science, complexity, chaos theory things. And he has this metaphor of a sand pile. And so you have the way certain systems are architected, right? You have, you know, one grain of sand fall, which triggers two grains of sand to fall, which triggers four grains of sand to fall, which triggers eight grains of sand to fall, you know, and you can, like it cascades all the way down. And it's like, yeah, effectively, it's impossible to predict like which grain of sand is going to be the one that sets everything off. But uh, you can look at like the structure of how the system is set up and say, is this the type of system? Like, are things interconnected in such a way? that it would be that this is a possible thing that, you know, if you have things, if you have all the pieces are very disconnected, you know, if you have a 200 mini sand piles or whatever, uh, you don't have the kind of this big cascade, but if everything is sort of all, and I think this is sort of my understanding of part of the dynamics in 2008, right? As you just had, everything was very leveraged and like very interconnected in ways that was pretty opaque. And like that, that sort of fundamental dynamic hasn't changed that everything is still very leveraged and everything is still very connected. And like, no one has particularly good visibility into, into what that actually looks like. Yeah. I think, I think I agree with that. I think I agree with that. And it's hard to think about a, a situation where things aren't interdependent or connected or whatever, whatever word you want to use, 
it's hard to think of, of, a, of a financial system where that's not the case, quite frankly. And then, then, then maybe, Eric, that's where it comes back to crypto, where like potentially, potentially there could be a you know, decentralized financial system that arises from, from all of this, you know, potentially, uh, you know, again, it's hard, it's hard to see a world without Goldman Sachs, but like, you know, it's, it's uh, at the same time, Goldman Sachs arguably shouldn't be around right now. I mean, they were saved by, they were saved by the Fed. You know, they, they say they weren't, but they were, I think they became a bank holding company, them and Morgan Stanley, but you know, Bear Stearns is gone and Lehman Brothers is basically gone, you know, Barclays bought them or whatever, but like, it's you know maybe that maybe there's a, there's a way for some sort of decentralized financial infrastructure financial system to arise maybe concurrently kind of maybe we're seeing that you know the cynic in me says that's nonsense because you know when I look at some of the projects that are doing those things I'm like come on you know it just seems seems like more of the same just painted with a different brush of blockchain and and crypto so so again you know I want to be open minded and I want to be positive I really I really do believe it or not it's just you know. It's just hard to see that, but I definitely see a potentiality for you know something like hard, uh, some some hard money, you know, Bitcoin, you know, is the best example of that right now. Probably the only example of that right now, where that becomes a much much bigger factor in things. Can you describe a little bit more? You, earlier, you, you sort of alluded to you know, a little bit. You said who's going to save save the the Fed in terms of? Can you describe a little bit more of the situation with just debt uh, overall in like specifically U.S. And how, you know, it needs to be paid eventually, but how does that actually work and how's that going to play out? Because it seems like such a looming, looming thing and people don't really know how to understand it. Yeah, I don't, I don't either, man. <laughs> I mean, it's daunting and it's overwhelming to think about. I mean, there's just, there's so much, there's so many liabilities. Um, you know, if you want to even consider, do you consider social, that's the, that's not explicit debt necessarily on the balance sheet, but like the social security system is is a massive future liability. I mean, similar to kind of the pension stuff. There's a, it's a future future debt, let's call it. And then you've got, you know, student loan debt. I mean, that's a whole different different conversation. But but yeah, I mean, so many of these situations seem seem unsustainable and, and overwhelming and you don't know what happens. And so what, you know, kind of has happened is, you know, what they, what they you know, the, by, by printing money, they, they kind of can do what, you know, what's called inflating their way out on some level, right? The government, they can, they can, they can pay back, you know, nominal liabilities in money that's just printed. And so even though, you know, that same $100,000, let's just say debt is, is it still, still, still says $100,000, but you know, if, the, if they've devalued the dollar so significantly, $100,000 is nothing, you know, at, at some point in the future. So yeah, man, I mean, trust me, I, I'm not smart enough to understand what the solution is. I wish I was, uh, I, I, again, but he is, I mean, to me, when I start going down these rabbit holes of, you know, government debt and, and, and debt relative to GDP, which is near the highest it's ever been, um, you know, globally too, it's not just here. I mean, it's, it's in other countries and some countries it's, it's just ridiculous numbers. It's, it's like, well, how is this happening? How is this existing? How is this, you know, it should have, it should have gone a long time ago, but it still goes and it's still going. So, you know, it, it's like, it's like the, the music's playing as I keep saying, and it's, it's, it's hard to reconcile, man. I, I wish I had a more succinct, Smart answer on that. Presumably, there are you know other people you know who deep in Wall Street who are also sort of you know worried about the future, whether they have you know different reasons to be or maybe similar. But are you one of the few or one of the only you know people who has a couple decades um, doing what you do, who's advocating, or even people in Wall Street like advocating for hard, sound money? Or, or is that have you found like a contingent of you know people really experienced there also advocating for that? No. No, I mean, I mean, it's it's funny you say that, man. Because most, I'm not saying I have the broadest network. I'm not saying I'm Mr. Wall Street guy. Because a, I don't want to be painted that brush. Because uh, I, I don't Wall Street uh, intimately. But b, I just, yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like a lot of a lot of people, you know, very very smart guys. They're they're either they're anywhere from kind of not caring about about this stuff or not understanding, you know, what is crypto or what is whatever because they're so busy working and they're just you're not focused on it to you know, kind of actually understanding it a bit, but there's a lot of, there's a lot less people in my opinion that really nuance it and really do the work to understand. Like I, I, I don't see it being prevalent um, at all. Perhaps that changes. And I, and I don't just think that applies to wall street. I think it applies to the world. I mean, the country, at least I don't think, you know, people, people don't seem that focused on it. They don't seem to care. You know, people would rather be deep down the, 
Instagram rabbit hole and deep down the, the Bitcoin hard money, you know, talking about Ludwig von Mises, you know, I don't think that's uh that's that interesting to most people. Did you get into hard money, like reading Austrian economics or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I did, I did, I probably learned about it in college and, you know, have picked it up here and there. And, and just to be clear again, I, I'm not hedging myself here, but I'm not some Mr. Like Saifedean and, you know, this is the only way, and this is the only thing that can ever happen. And this is how, you know, this is the only way, because if you look at history too, you know, austerity and not non-spending and, and lack of government intervention arguably extended the Great Depression. And, you know, again, lots of nuance to these situations. But I, I'm not, I think, I think there's a definite solid argument for hard money. I think there's definitely an underappreciated argument for it at, at minimum. And potentially, it is going to be a solution to some problem or, or, or some big problems, potentially. But, I, I, you know, I want to be hopeful, man. I want to be hopeful that, that, that other things kind of rise and that there's some real tech in, 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 the, in the crypto or, you know, I don't know, blockchain, whatever, whatever world you want to call it. I want there to be multiple ways to win. You know, that's how I, I want to be optimistic and open-minded. It, you know, it's just the more I, I educate myself and the more I learn, the more it's, it's harder to see that. Yeah. How do you think about the crypto hedge fund landscape in 2018? And are, are you doing like any efforts in that landscape? I'm definitely not an expert in, in that space. I mean, I know who the big players are and I've, I've got opinions. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to, you know, talk, talk negatively or, you know, about, about anyone. I, you know, I think there's different, different skill sets and, and different, different ways to do it. I think, I think people's perspectives are changing, you know, even in, in that, in that realm, you know, even the fund managers themselves are changing their minds, you know, and, and, and that's, that, that's good. It shows open-mindedness in terms of, in terms of approach. And I think, if you're in this crypto space, you cannot be you cannot be closed minded. You have to be open to positive. You know, if you're in the crypto fund management space, you by definition have to be super open minded because you know if if you're a hardcore you know maximalist, well, you're not going to be running a hedge fund most likely unless you can compartmentalize in a big way. So yeah, I mean, I think I think we're I think we'll we'll see them grow. I think there is going to be more more. Um, you know, money kind of, kind of coming into the space, but that's not a, you know, I don't think that's a guarantee that, that, oh, inst- you know, everybody says institutions are just waiting. Institutions are on deck and institutions are coming. And I think that's happening. Again, I'm not an expert on these flows. I think you should, you could have, you know, some of the bigger guys on, they could talk about that more, but I, I it's not a fait accompli. These, you know, crypto funds are, are just going to all of a sudden become multi, multi, multi billion, fund, billion dollar funds and, and, what, and whatever the, the, the industry is so, in its infancy. And, you know, I think periods like right now, where a, there's a lot of humbling, let's call it being done in these markets, um, you know, lots of things down a lot. And, you know, what does that mean? Does that, what does that do to, to people's psychology, you know, both fund managers, but also investors, you know, these industri- these institutional investors that were all excited to invest in 2000, in 2017, you know, and all geared up and all doing all these things, are they going to be as geared up now and and are people going to be as excited about the asset class and and so that those are those are big questions i think that it's a bit of a moving target i'd like to be i'd like to be excited i'd like i'd like for it to to grow because i think it's good it's good but you know we need need to see need to see some more you know successful projects that work and some you know some some things where show it you know let's prove there's an economic you know whatever token economic system that actually makes makes sense and, and and works we have seen some maximalist start funds, you know, our, our mutual friend Murad is starting a fund and Nick Carter, you started a fund. I think, you know, they're saying some combination of, Hey, we'll actively trade Bitcoin and, and try to try to beat it or, and, or, you know, at some point, many Bitcoin's growth will become linear and we'll invest in, you know, projects, you know, building on top of it. Are you dubious of any? Oh, no, I'm, I'm actually, you actually mentioned some of the, <laughs> some of the guys I respect the most in the industry. Those, those, you know, Nick and, and Murad, I, I didn't even know Murad was, was starting a fund, but yeah, I mean, so, okay. So I guess I, I should have differentiated. I think that there is you know difference between kind of venture investing or investing in, in kind of the rails of, of the system. If you're investing in the rails of a new financial system where Bitcoin is going to be the back drop for it and you're building payment rails on top of it and exchange and, and, 
and simple you know, coins is, is something that could that could be uh, overlaid on top of that. And and yeah, if you can if you go up in layers, sure. I think that's more of a venture capital fund. And so maybe I I was more thinking just too literally about a crypto hedge fund. Um, I, but if you look at the venture funds that are that are focused on kind of infrastructure and you know projects around that, I think that that's that's a different animal than kind of these 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 multi coin you know. And I don't mean Kyle necessarily, but just guys that are just investing in public liquid coins. And I, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a big difference. Yeah. You know, anytime I talk to someone who's been in Wall Street for, for a decade or two decades, and I ask them about, you know, quant, crypto quant funds or algorithmic trading, you know, crypto, they either say that it's, it's dumb or they'll get eaten alive by sort of traditional Wall Street firms that, that will get into crypto and have all the infrastructure. Hmm. What's your, where are you there? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's merit to the statement that over time, if this industry takes off like, you know, people were expecting it to or, you know, what some many expected still to, yeah, the machines will come in and they'll eat away at margins. And up until, I mean, I think so people still do it. I mean, people do what's called exchange arbitrage. I'm sure you've heard of that where they buy it on one exchange and sell it on another exchange. Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, in, in crypto, like that can't exist for so long. I mean, that, that, that that's like, you know, arbitrage 101, you know, and it's not so simple because you've got custody and all these, all these things. And you have, at the same time, yeah, I mean, machines they come in and if this industry is real and it becomes a trillions of dollar industry, yeah, people are going to put the resources towards, towards quantitative strategies and towards turn, putting the machines on it. But right now you've got, it's, it's so in its infancy, it's so unproven. People don't know, Wall Street doesn't know. They, 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 they're focused on kind of proven financial assets at the moment. And, and, I, and I'm sure there's some people looking at quant stuff. I'm sure there is. I, I don't know for a fact that, but I, I got to imagine there's a lot of smart people out there and, you know, and so I'm sure they're, they're deploying, employing it, but yeah, I think it makes it hard from a, from a strictly trading perspective. Let's, you know, differentiate between trading and investing. If we talk about a trading perspective, yeah, the machines come in and they make it very difficult to trade from an investing standpoint, whether it's in, in public, you know, publicly liquid you know, tokens or, or securities or private. I mean, it doesn't really apply to the private side, I suppose. But, um, but yeah, if, if that happens, for sure, margins go down. But the question is, is do we have five years? If this industry really gets to scale, do we have five or whatever years before there's, there, there's you know, the, the lunch starts getting eaten by the machines? That's the question. That's an awesome place to, to close. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. This was a fantastic episode. Thank you, Eric. Yes, it's fun. Thanks for having us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 